Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Gene Hoots, author of Going Down Tobacco Road, R.J. Reynolds' Tobacco Empire, The Gold Leaf in North Carolina. Using his 21 years of experience working for the Tobacco Empire, financial analyst Gene Hoots details the rise and fall of R.J. Reynolds. Along with this history are universal business lessons. Tobacco is a controversial product but the industry that created it is one of the most successful industries in America. Critics said the book tells a huge American story that needed telling and that it achieves this rare balance between combining a huge but purely business industry story with its deep human and cultural implications, giving texture, drama, and empathy to the reader. Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thanks again. Now, you are a financial guy who likes to play cowboy, right? Right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about the fact that you and I have something in common, a love for Lonesome Dove and all things Montana. Absolutely. Yeah. I go out there once a year and work on a ranch for a week. You're, you're, you're Billy Crystal, right? You go out for that cattle drive? Yeah, more year? or less. We've, we've run cattle around on 16,000 acres for a week. That sounds uh, like a lot different than managing a pension fund. Uh, it's very different, but I think I like it more than I do sitting behind a desk. That's good. Well, just for the listeners here, uh, Gene uh, worked for more than 50 years in the financial uh, as a financial analyst and 
uh, and you're involved in investments, including corporate acquisitions, running a major corporate benefits fund. And for the last 31 years, private investment firm, much different than riding a horse. Uh, he's a native North Carolinian who's never been able to stray too far from his roots. Uh, I think you grew up in Winston-Salem, right, Gene? That is correct. Yeah. Just outside in Clemens, actually. So did you smell the tobacco when you were growing up? I could, not from my home, but at work all over Winston-Salem, you could smell it everywhere. People locally said it smelled like money. <laughs> well, I went to law school in uh, Winston at Wake uh, in early 80s. And uh, even then, although it was on the tail end, you could kind of get that get that uh, smell, you know, and, and my father smoked a pipe. Uh, so I don't know, there's something about that smell that kind of pulls you in. Right. Um, now, you are now an author, uh, but you're also Exhibit A for the argument that it's never too late to write a book. That is true. I I wrote a small book about eight or nine years ago that was a collection of essays, more or less, but I had no idea what I was undertaking when I started this book at about age uh, 78, I suppose. It was a three-year endeavor, and if I'd have known it was going to take that long and that much work, I'm not sure I would have ever entered into the process, but I was I was gratified when it was done. I felt like it was a pretty decent effort, as it turned out. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that, because sometimes, you know, you talk to writers, and they say, well, you know, I think I'm a little too old to write a book, and uh, <clears throat> you started when you were 78, Um Tell me about that mindset. What made you just say, I'm, 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 age is not a factor here. I'm, I'm going to write this book. No, I had lots and lots of information to draw on. I had memories that go back 50 years, as you said, and they were all rattling around in my brain. And then it all came together about uh, 2015 or 16. I had always recognized that there was something unique about the tobacco industry, its profitability. Uh, there were other characteristics that it was a natural oligopoly. A lot of factors entered into it, but I hadn't really focused on it in the depth that I ultimately did until 2015. And three economists at the London School of Economics wrote a paper analyzing the most profitable industries in the UK and in America for 115 years, starting the first day of 1900. And not surprising, I guess, in the UK, the liquor business turned out to be the most <laughs> profitable business. Uh, here in America, hands down, the tobacco industry was by far the most profitable. In fact, the number that they came up with seemed staggering. They pointed out that if you had invested $1 in a group of tobacco stocks that were available in 1900 and had maintained that investment until 2015, $1 would have grown to $6.3 million. That just mm -hmm. staggers the imagination. But you look at it over that magic compounding for 115 years, that turned out to be about 14.5% a year compounded. And that indeed is about what the tobacco industry earned all those years, uh, well above the norm for any industry and outshining any other industry. And you talked about the fact that uh, in the book, how other industries came along that uh, really, you know, broke in. Uh, I mean, you talked about the automobile industry, you talked about uh, computers, you talked about other technologies. You said while they came along and they really took America by storm, they weren't the same kind of lasting profitability 
as the tobacco industry was over a long period of time. That is correct. Most all those industries, like the photography industry, Eastman Kodak went bankrupt. Xerography, tremendous innovation, but it became a commodity product over time. The airlines always had trouble making money, despite the technology and, and the massive change in the world that the airplane brought to us. So the tobacco industry really turned out to be pretty much unique in that. And I think a part of it was just an accident of history. There were two things going for the tobacco business that other people didn't have going for them. One, there was unquestionably an addictive product. It helps if you have a product that people are addicted to. <laughs> I always said when, when I, and, and it's the tobacco industry never really wanted to recognize this. They certainly denied it for a long time, but basically it was true. And I always said it wasn't a genius uh, investment if you took a product that you made for a dime and sold for a dollar and it was habit forming. Uh, it was pretty easy to make money in a, in a business like that one. And that's pretty much the way it worked out. Yeah, you, you talked, the, the Winston-Salem Journal wrote about you in this effort here to put this book together, and they talked about it being this uh, uh, three years worth of research and interviews and called it a quest. And I was just curious, uh, what drove you to be on this quest? Uh, what were you hoping to discover? What were you hoping to reveal? Well, to begin with, the company had gone through this tremendous event with the buyout in 1988-89. The company was put up for sale and was bought by a private equity firm in New York. This was the seminal event in the history of R.J. Reynolds. At that point, it was probably 110, 115 years old. But the story of that buyout was chronicled by two Wall Street Journal writers in the book Barbarians at the Gate. They did a masterful job of covering that event, but they only covered things that happened over about a six or eight week period, because that's when all the action took place. There was much more to the story than that. And I wanted to go back and trace a history of 30 years, and it turned out to be more like 50 to 100 years preceding that event and explaining what happened to R.J. Reynolds that led him to the time when a wonderful company like this would just be put on the block and sold. Following that buyout, there was another almost 30 years of history that people have forgotten. The buyout came, it went, people moved on with their lives, and even people that work for R.J. Reynolds that I talk with never knew what happened to the various pieces of the business. And there were three fascinating stories about the operating companies that continued to exist after the buyout. And I wanted to cover all that so that people could understand in a broader context what had happened. Yeah, and, and I know there's more parts to this book than what I'm going to mention here, but I, I sort of was thinking about three aspects to the book in my own mind. One was the history of tobacco growing, processing, and distribution, because you cover that history. The next was sort of the rise of the tobacco companies on Tobacco Road. And the third was the sort of carelessness or cavalierness that resulted in the leverage buyout, uh, the impact it had on Winston-Salem, and as you said, what followed you know, that period mm -hmm. of time. Let's start with uh, the history a little bit, because I think it's fascinating. You you talk about the early origins of tobacco and how it took root, so to speak, in North Carolina yeah. and why it was right. and why it was why it was so important in North Carolina. Talk about that history and why it was important in North Carolina. 
the history covers about 400 years, so let's yeah, be brief right. about let's, it. Let's, but, let's give the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> right. Quickly, the Reader's Digest version is that, of course, the Native Americans have been growing tobacco for centuries. Columbus shows up pretty quickly. They, they introduced tobacco, mostly smoking tobacco, into Europe. This would have been around the early 1500s. By the mid-1500s, Europeans were pretty much hooked on tobacco, mostly smoking tobacco, some chewing tobacco. That started a trend that lasted forever. The early regents who controlled the countries in those days, the kings, queens, the czars, didn't like it. They, they abhorred the product, wanted to put it out of business. They weren't able to, despite severe punishments to those who smoked. And finally, they figured out that the best thing they could do with tobacco was let everybody use it and then tax the daylights out of it. And that's exactly what they did and what we've continued to do for the next 400 years and are still doing today even more massively than any Russian czar ever dreamed of in, uh, 400 years ago. So, so that's interesting. So, um, you know, we think of Tobacco Road uh, because of the rivalries between some of the basketball teams. We don't often think about what it means. So tell us exactly where Tobacco Road is. Where does it start? Where does it end? If it has a geographic beginning and end, I place the, the main road, the interstate road. Actually, it follows pretty much Interstate 40. It would start a few miles west of Winston-Salem in Yadian County, maybe Alexander County, and move east all the way to Greenville, Rocky Mount, in, in that region. North Carolina is the heart of it. Tributaries actually extend as far south as northern Florida, where tobacco is grown, up into Virginia, and all the way west to, say, Paducah, Kentucky, where they grow burley tobacco out there. But Tobacco Road pretty much follows the big four basketball teams from uh, Winston-Salem to Durham and Raleigh. And, and the reason we call it that, it has to do with where the tobacco was Proce well, processed, I suppose, and then where it was sold. Is that right? That is correct. Where it was grown as well. It was grown all along that area. But that uh, Virginia had started the tobacco business in Jamestown. The first tobacco crop for export was grown in, in 1611 by, and, and sold to England by a man named John Rolfe. And I learned a lot of history about tobacco in researching the book that I never knew. Rolf's wife was an interesting lady named Pocahontas. Uh, it was that Pocahontas, the one of, of Disney fame, but there was a second marriage for both of them. But tobacco prospered in Virginia and Maryland. And then in the early 1800s, 1820 or so, by complete chance, the serendipitous discovery, uh, a slave was curing tobacco. I think it was in Person County. Let the fire go out restarted the fire that was heating the tobacco to cure it with charcoal. And it that super heat turned the leaf a bright golden yellow. Everything changed after that. When they realized that that product could be grown easily all over North Carolina and cured in that fashion, the to whole industry shifted south from Virginia to North Carolina. And North Carolina never gave up its place as number one in tobacco. I'll talk yeah. about the importance of tobacco to the state. It's hard to believe the impact economically that tobacco had on the state of North Carolina. So many areas that you look at benefited from it. Both individuals, farmers, companies, 
charities over the years. I, I mentioned that, and people forget that today. Wake Forest and Duke University both were funded with tobacco money. There would be neither one of those schools in existence today were it not for, for the tobacco wealth that was created by R.J. Reynolds and James Buchanan Duke. So it was very important to the state. Yeah, and you talked about your own family connection and how maybe at one time you weren't uh, uh, politically so um, you know fond of those kind of programs that would give, I don't know, giveaways to, to people. But then when you studied this more closely, you found that your family was a beneficiary of the tobacco allotments, correct? Right, to my amazement and, and, and surprise. I had always been economically conservative. I wasn't much on a charitable giving by the U.S. government. And then I realized that what had happened in 1938 or thereabouts as part of one of Roosevelt's programs, he realized the plight of the tobacco farmers, that they were starving, that simply could not sell the crop and make a profit. And for many, many farmers in North Carolina, tobacco was the only crop that they had that brought in the needed cash to buy a few clothes and shoes for the children. And while they might grow most of their food, they still had to go to the store and buy sugar and salt and a few staples like that. They didn't have the money for it. And the tobacco allotment program provided that. I know I've mentioned in the book that my uncle Kenneth, that I revered so much and thought so much of, he was a farmer and he, he always said to me, Roosevelt was the only president that ever cared about people like me. I never understood that till I did the research for the book and saw that the allotment program saved the small farmer in North Carolina. It gave them a chance to make a few bucks where they never would have had it otherwise. And I said, had it not been for that, my own family, about about the time I was born, might have loaded everything on their pickup and headed for California like the Okies did in the Grapes of Wrath. We might have had no other choice. That's interesting. Um, and you talked about uh, this whole process, the curing of tobacco, which made me understand better why they hang the tobacco leaves in the top of a barn uh, like they do and then put the embers below to kind of cure it. Uh, well, talk a little bit about uh, this movement from, you know, tobacco road to tobacco becoming king in North Carolina. And, and some of it had to do with the effectiveness of marketing. And, you know, marketing took a turn, of course, when the federal government got involved later and said, you can't put this on TV, you can't put this in advertisements. But talk about the kind of things that uh, tobacco did to entice people to you know, buy their product, and there'll be some familiar names, I'm sure. That'll oh, yes, yes. Well, as a, as a quick background, tobacco had been mostly smoking tobacco, pipe tobacco, that was, and chewing tobacco up until about 1910. Cigarettes were not the choice vehicle, as, as one of my friends later said and wrote a controversial paper about, cigarettes were not the, the choice nicotine delivery system. That's what tobacco really was. So the industry was not convinced that cigarettes would ever take the place of chewing tobacco. But a couple of things happened. As, this, as the country became more urban, it became a little less popular to spit chewing tobacco on the streets in the city. So they needed another vehicle for their for their nicotine consumption. And cigarettes began to be a little more popular. But there was still no national brand. And a couple of things happened. The industry was still not convinced of tobacco 
but the tobacco trust that it existed uh, put together by James Duke in the late 1800s and the 1890s, the tobacco trust was broken up about 1912 by by Theodore Roosevelt and his trust busters. So much of American industry was held in trust, like the steel industry, the oil industry. Tobacco was one of those, and it split up. R.J. Reynolds had been a small player in this. He had been forced by, by his arch rival, James Buchanan Buck Duke, to join the trust. It was either that or go out of business. When the trust busted, R.J. Reynolds got his company back. And he, he hated the New York crowd, as he called them, the people who had controlled his business for several years. He had answered to them. He had flourished under them, no question about it, but he still didn't like it. And when he got his company back, he made the comment, now watch me give Buck Duke hell. So that was his goal, and he achieved it mightily. So he started in 1912 or 13 with an, with an idea of a national brand of cigarette. And he personally did all the testing. He developed a brand that was a blend of, as the, as the package now says, of domestic and Turkish tobaccos. It had a unique flavor to it. And he dis, he wanted an exotic name for it. And he finally came up with the name Camel, Camel Cigarettes. There, was, there were alternative names, which I won't go into, that were interesting stories in themselves. But he came up with the name Camel. And then... He did something that had never been done. He waged a national advertising campaign for a consumer product and spent over a million dollars on that campaign. And it was masterfully done. He started out by posting billboards and newspaper ads that said simply, the camels are coming. It didn't say what camels were. It just said the camels are coming. And then it said later, in a month, the camels will be here. (laughs) Then Next week, the camels will arrive. And finally, Billboard said, tomorrow there will be more camels in this town than in all of Asia. (laughs) And people were just fascinated by this. And then he rolled out camel cigarettes. It was an instant success. The product took off. The product gained sales and profits at the rate of, I think, 18% compounded for 10 or 12 years. They, They went up 10 or 15 fold and in in sales and rj reynolds just dominated the industry from 1913 to about 1928 with tremendous growth in sales profits manufacturing facilities that was fostered by first the advertising campaign later the other two big cigarette companies had to come up with a competitive product duke's american tobacco came out with lucky strike Liggett and Myers came out with Chesterfield. So now you had three major brands that dominated the market. They had almost all the market share. But the thing that <clears throat> pushed smoking over the top was World War One, And it followed on in World War Two as well. All those boys went overseas. <clears throat> all those soldiers went overseas. They needed cigarettes. Actually, General Pershing actually said, we need more cigarettes. It's a critical uh, element of our of our winning the war in Europe. So they handed out free cigarettes to all of the doughboys over there. And what happened was in 1918, all these kids returned home, uh, avowed smokers, and they had a generation of smokers for the rest of their lives. That was repeated all over again. Yeah. And so, you know, we're talking about this history here of, of tobacco and the impact that it had. 
uh, in the U.S. Uh, and we're going to talk in a moment about the financial part of this, but we can't forget um, you mentioned these words, uh, nicotine delivery system. That's something that came up in later litigation. Uh, you know, when the tobacco industry was uh, facing rightly criticism for concealing information, perhaps it had on the adverse effects that tobacco had. And there's this uh, dark side of this whole product, uh, which you don't cover in, in, in a whole lot of detail in your book, but it's there, right? I mean, the fact that uh, that's not really the story you're telling, but it's it's part of this whole story, right? No, it is part of the story. The, the story I focused on was the the great financial impact that the tobacco company had, but it could have been any product. But I do go to considerable lengths to point out that its success was because it was habit forming and not necessarily something that was good for society. And in, no, in the book, I was in no way apologist, uh, an apologist for the cigarette business. And in fact, I said early on that if I were king of the world, I'd outlaw smoking, but I'd outlaw a lot of other things too that people right. probably wouldn't be probably wouldn't be happy about. Well, let's turn to one of the uh, interesting discussions uh, here by having you do a reading uh, from the book. We do this with uh, Charlotte's podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. This is a part of the book that's going to bring in the uh, uh, the levers buyout, I believe. So uh, that's correct. Whenever you're ready, just uh, take it away. Sure. I will say set the stage saying that this is an excerpt from a description of that moment when the company was bought out, how it, how it came to be. <clears throat> In 1984, Tylee Wilson became CEO of R.J. Reynolds. He implemented a consumer product strategy that R.J.R. had never fully executed. In 1985, everything was going R.J.R.'s way. Sales, earnings, and the stock set record highs. Wilson continued to shape the company into a worldwide giant. He bought Nabisco brands and was praised as a shrewd deal maker. However, with the deal of Nabisco came Ross Johnson, Nabisco's CEO, who was skillful at corporate politics. Wilson had bought a powerhouse of cookies, crackers, and other goodies, but he had also bought himself a world of trouble with Ross Johnson. And he would find that out soon enough. In 1986, began the year began with great promise, but the empire had reached its peak. 26 years had brought 14 major acquisitions in seven different industries. In a few months, everyone would realize that this series of imaginative experiments had gotten a little out of hand and had taken a toll on RJR's culture. Unquestionably, RJR had needed changes. Not the least was more openness to outside ideas and international markets. But each acquisition had chipped away at the empire's original culture and invited in barbarians who viewed tobacco with disdain. They captured RJR without drawing a sword. On August the 15th, 1986, Ross Johnson became CEO. Unrecognized at the time, this announcement meant the beginning of the end. The empire would come crashing down 14 months later. The seminal moment had been a long time coming, but nearly 30 years of misdirection for RJR finally brought it down. On October the 19th, 1988, Ross approached the board with an offer. He and a group of seven executives would pay $75 a share, about $17 billion for the company. His terms were control of the board and 20% of the stock for himself and his group. Valued at about $3.5 billion, 
without putting up any money. A fair guess would be that Ross expected 5% worth more than $880 million. Ross's perceived greed stunned everyone. The board members were shocked. He surely assumed that because the board had anointed him and he had gone above and beyond to ingratiate himself to them, they would hand him the company. But just as his attorney had warned, this audacious proposal put the board in an awkward position and personal relationships went out the window. The RJR board put the company into play while they considered their options. So, and you go into detail in the book, uh, Gene, and we don't have time for all of that, but how the the bidding war took took effect and, and then, uh, you know, it got bought for this astronomical price that uh, later didn't uh, pan out necessarily as well as the, as the buyer thought it would. Um, and you talk a little bit about uh, some of the lessons uh, learned and, and just briefly, um, can you tell us uh, what you think the lesson, some of the lessons are from this uh, experience? You study this uh, in great detail. Um, tell us a few of the lessons that uh, came out of this. Well, there were three broad lessons. The, the major one that came from RJR had to do with the acquisition program. Let's talk about that. I mentioned the businesses that Reynolds bought. The, the key thing that brought RJR down was its efforts at diversification. Starting in 1960, there was great concern that the government was going to put the tobacco business just out of business. That there, were, there was fear that they would outlaw cigarettes. Now, that never came to pass and probably never will now, but they didn't know that then. So they set out to diversify. And the truth of the matter is that we were characterized by others as a bunch of country boys with too much money in our pocket, and there were lots of folks out there willing to help us spend it. And I'm afraid that's what happened. So over this period, starting from 1960 to 1986, cul culminating in the purchase of, of Nabisco Brands, the company entered seven or eight big industries, none of them very successfully. We bought food companies. We bought oil companies. We bought a major shipping company, the containerized shipping business we entered into. That was the worst of the group. But in some, they were all pretty much overpriced. We paid too much for them. We were we did look like a bunch of country boys, I'm afraid. With Well, well it raised the question. I think you raised it in the book. What does a tobacco company uh, have business doing owning a shipping company or a or a food company. <laughs> well, the food, none with tobacco. What did we have? To, what business did we have in the oil? Oil patch? business too. Yeah, we, that was one. That was one that I worked on, and by chance, that one turned out successfully. That was the only one that you could chalk up as a real success, and that was because it was a commodity. We bought it cheap, owned it about five or six years. The price of oil went up. And Tylee Wilson sold the thing for about three times what we paid for it. That one was a success, um, but it really didn't have anything to do strategically with our business. The food business appeared to make sense because it was also a consumer product, but it took years before anybody would own up to the fact that tobacco and foods did not belong in the same company. Finally, in 1992 or three or four, the latest CEO at that point finally admitted that. He said, we've got, to, we've got to split this up. They have no place with each other. The bottom line in all of that was, by the time the company was ready to be bought out, Reynolds, over a 
26, 28-year period had invested $19 billion in businesses outside its basic tobacco business. And that $19 billion had yielded a return to the shareholders of $18 billion. We lost a billion dollars on the $19 billion that we put into it. The return on that investment was minus 1.5% a year. We'd have been better off if we'd have just turned it all into greenbacks and put it in a warehouse somewhere and left it there for that period of time. Which which I think led to your conclusion and lesson, don't bet the farm on something you know nothing about. That's exactly right. That was the major lesson there. We, It's it's fine to be venturesome. You want yeah. to. The, the, the other lesson that, that goes along with that was there was a wonderful business there with tobacco. That was a business that was profitable. The people at RJ Reynolds knew that business inside and out. They were superb at it, but they wandered off on all these other side roads and bought this other stuff. And the big thing I drew from that was don't squander your birthright. That goes as far back as the Bible in Genesis, by the way. Same message. Uh, You've got a birthright. Don't take it for granted. And I'm afraid that's what happened with RJR. That that birthright th- gave so much cash that it ultimately led to hubris on the part of nearly every CEO that ran the company afterwards. They looked at it and said, we've got so much money that I can do this, I can do that, I can do anything, and it won't matter because we've got all this money. That's not a good way to run things. Now, Gene, you said you weren't a- an apologist uh, for the uh, tobacco industry and you would have chosen something different. Uh, uh, you worked there for many years. I- I'm wondering... Uh, at what point did it become apparent to people in this very profitable business that what they were doing was killing people and that, uh, you know, that, that maybe they needed to, you know, rethink, you know, what they were doing? I'm not sure because I wasn't privy to the to the documents, but I suspect that they began to get at least inklings of it in the early 1960s. For one thing, if you look at the history Tobacco is a slow killer. Uh, for years and years, uh, they argued that it that it didn't really kill people. But the, the reason was it takes about 30 to 40 years for the bulk of people to suffer harms from harm from tobacco that becomes apparent through lung cancer, emphysema, et cetera. And so all those earlier years, you could deny that it really had any harmful impact at all. But by 1960 or so, the companies had research people examining this. I think they were pretty sure that tobacco was harmful. And I think a mistake that tobacco companies made was to deny, deny, deny. And that went on from 1960 through actually around uh, for another 30 years or so. They simply stonewalled and said it it doesn't cause uh, any real harm to people. There's there's no direct linkage between smoking. There, it, the direct linkage is hard to come up with because it isn't something that you get like a disease and you die in in a week. So it's it was very hard to to get the information together to refute the cigarette companies. But ultimately, they did. the The weight of evidence just became so overwhelming that they had to admit it. One of the smartest people in the tobacco business that I dealt with, and I talk about him later in the book, he said that he thought it was a mistake that the cigarette companies did not fess up earlier and deal with the problem in a different way than they did, rather than the denials. 
So I think it had been going on a long time. So I know that there are products out there that, uh, as you say, are addictive. You know, alcohol can lead to problems as well, uh, but uh, it's a product that's still readily available. But cigarettes, uh, you know, have, as you said, been well-researched to cause harmful effects uh, in humans. What about the tobacco industry now? What about producing tobacco and selling it to people these days? this is a, that's a great question because I, I have an audience for the book that I never expected to have. And I mentioned this uh, in some notes I think I sent you that I have received emails and phone calls literally from all over the world uh, India, Shanghai, Poland. Usually these are young people who are analysts looking for cheap stocks that are worth buying. And they're very much interested in tobacco stocks. And they've asked me the same question. Unfortunately, I don't have any great insights about where the business is going, except this. I would say that probably the need for nicotine is ingrained in most of society and that there will be continued use for nicotine for a long, long time. I don't think it's going to go away. What that delivery system will be is hard to define. It may be Juul. It may be the vaping product. could be something else. But for a while, a good while, it's going to continue to be cigarettes. One of the things that fascinated me was an article in the last couple of weeks in the Wall Street Journal or or someplace that I read, maybe it was Bloomberg, that said smoking is back. Now that people are staying home and aren't having to go to an office anymore, they're smoking like crazy once again at home. One guy said, I was sick of having to walk outside every time I wanted a cigarette, which wasn't very often that I could get outside my office building. Now that I'm working in my own kitchen or out in the backyard, I can smoke anytime I want, and I'm back up to a couple packs a day. Mm. And it kind of shows that it just isn't going to go away. Yeah. Well, the last thing we want to do is encourage uh, cigarette smoking, but I think your book is more uh, a historical perspective on this entire industry, what it's done for North Carolina, how, you know, the rise and fall, so to speak. Uh, It's not so much a a commentary. uh, It's not even really a memoir, even though you spent a lot of years there. Um, We don't have time, Gene, to really dive too much into your writing life here, but I want to let the listeners know that uh, you and I are going to jump over to our Patreon channel now, at, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, a topic uh, that I'm, I think I'm calling it here, Making Financial Nonfiction Interesting. And we're going to talk about the things that you did, some of the headings you used, some of the techniques that you followed for that. And listeners, you can join us there at uh, Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com forward slash charlotte readers podcast and listen to that interview as well as uh you know 40 or 50 more exclusive interviews for those of you who support us for as little as five dollars a month um you get access to that and, and a lot of great content uh but gene i will ask you one question uh in closing you're a numbers guy most of your life uh you did say you wrote some essays but uh i just want to ask you um you know what this experience of writing did for you had it uh you know something different than you had done normally in your career Mm -hmm. could you're um i want to be a far as far away from spreadsheets as i can get but that's what you spent your life with so tell 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 the listeners uh what that experience was like for you 
it turned out to be uh, the experience of a lifetime. It's been something I thoroughly enjoyed as I wrapped it up. For one thing, it gave me an opportunity to go back and explore a history that I didn't know about before in tobacco. The second thing, it reunited me with lots of R.J. Reynolds people that are still around even after 30 years. I had interviews with 50 or 60 of them. Uh, we found it fun to reminisce about the things that went on there. So I got reacquainted and and with old friends. And then the third thing was I made new friends. A number of people simply called me or wrote me and told me about their life experiences, how tobacco had affected their life. Uh, one young man, or maybe not so young now, said that uh, tobacco put him and his brother through Duke Med School. And, and those are the kind of things that come up in the conversations that, uh, after the book that meant a lot. It's been fun to talk with people and get to know a lot of people. So listeners, uh, let me just tell you that uh, we have uh, in our show notes uh, at charlotterspodcast.com information on how you can uh, find Gene, his uh, contact information, website, information about the book, the book cover. Uh, the book is available uh, uh, locally at Park Road Books. It's also available, uh, you know, uh, through all of your internet sources and you know who they are. Uh, just uh, check that out. Uh, and as you can tell, Gene, uh, he, he, he's a storyteller. And so you, you can join us uh, for more discussion about this story on Patreon and also learn uh, if you're a writer or a reader who likes to read uh, about uh, uh, these types of stories, how to make them interesting, how to make these stories that have finances in them uh, interesting. And so we'll be talking about that. Gene, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to come and participate. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.